Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. This is episode 22 and I'm your host, David Gibney, and I'm joined by my co-host, Claire O'Connor. On Sunday, we had a conversation with Kieran Campbell, who'll be familiar to many of the listeners uh, to this podcast as one of the founders and a regular contributor, but also with Bernadette McGalisky, uh, a well-known left-wing political commentator. And we discussed Unquiet Graves, the documentary shown on RTE during the week about the murder triangle and British collusion with loyalist paramilitaries. Before we go to it, The Week of Work is teaming up with a number of other left-wing activists to launch a new left-wing media hub called Left Block. We'll be launching a Patreon soon, with proceeds going towards political education. So please keep an eye out for Left Block Media over the coming weeks, and don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. So without further ado, here's this week's podcast. I, I, want, I was talking to both Kieran and Bernadette during the week about some of the Unquiet Grave stuff. And, you know, coming up, growing up in Dublin, uh, completely insulated from all of the, the troubles in the North, you know, I, I've always been interested in it. I've bought books, I've read up on, on what's been going on, but it was a completely different world to, to many of us down here. So when we're watching stuff like Unquiet Graves the other night, um, what, what the, the most, the thing that stood out for me the most was not anything that's in it, but was the lack of coverage that it got from the mainstream media. It's, it's like a really uncomfortable truth about what was going on up north. But of course, you guys live this, Kieran and, and Bernadette. So we wanted to just throw it to you guys and ask, you know, for your reflections on both the documentary and, and what it was like growing up. Bernadette, you were in the, living in the murder triangle, as, as it's called in the, in the documentary. But do you want to talk to us a little bit about your experiences of this stuff? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, I think there's there's two things that that you say. Uh, I sat uh, I sat and watched it, uh, and when I say I sat and watched it, that was not for me. That, that's my clock. Uh, what for many people, and not just saying for myself, if you think about the northern experiences, many many people had to make a very conscious and deliberate decision whether or not they would sit and watch that. Because for many people, there are issues of re-traumatizing, uh, of anger, of why would, why would we do that? Why would we do that to ourselves? Because it isn't new to us. We knew it was happening when it was happening. And I and others, I mean, it wasn't that the media didn't have an opportunity to know what was happening. I did, Father Fall did, as as the program showed, Father Murray did, many other groups and organizations did draw to the attention of the media, never mind, the, and to the authorities, and to the government in the south of Ireland, that we had reason to believe, we suspected, we knew it couldn't happen without the active support of the forces of law and order in the areas in which we lived. And not only did people not believe us, not only did people not listen to us, but those who should, particularly in the media, who talk so much about balance, have given us a hearing, stayed away from it because they suspected us all as terrorists. We were part of a suspect community. We were apologists for violence. We were, if not supporters, 
tolerant of the IRA and that's all they were interested in. And so when all of that went on, when family after family suffered, nobody, nobody in the media cared enough to do anything about about it. And part of me, notwithstanding the excellent work that was done around it, says, and I think this is particularly important in terms of of Kieran and his father uh, and others. It's a lot easier telling this story when it's over. The real courage of real journalism would have been to tell this story when it was happening because it could have stopped it. And and Kieran, then I'll, I'll go to you after that because your you, your dad was a journalist at the time, attempting to cover it with a small um, cohort of of journalists. Tell us tell us the story of of your father and, and growing up in in that period of time. Well, interesting. Um, Bernadette touched on something there that is very important when she said that some of us might have chosen not to watch on quiet graves, and I made that conscientious decision because you are reliving something and as Bernadette says we in the north lived through at different levels and there's very few people in the north where the troubles didn't visit them in some shape or form unfortunately for my family and through my father and what I would have to say is courageous investigative journalism um, and I think Bernadette maybe have touched on this that at the time at the very height of this and when it was very clear that there was British collusion with these loyalist paramilitary death squads at the very highest level. And I have to, I would like to make a quote that I took from a book by Paul Larkin, um, a very British yihad, which I would advise people to read. The decision to train, arm and deploy these squads came from London and followed the late Ernie Neve MP's mantra that hit squads, as he called them, were needed to take out the hard men. Now, the hard men were innocent Catholics and very often Protestants who maybe were mistakenly killed or got in the way of these people's actions. And the dogs in the street, let alone the security services, knew who these so-called hard men. And at that time of my father's shooting on the 18th of May, um, 1984, he was investigating a guy called Robin Jackal, who amongst his friends, he was nicknamed Jacko, but my father decided to give him the moniker, the, the Jackal. And at that time, he was the leader of the Mid-Ulster UVF Brigade. And he had got there by physical force, hadn't taken out his previous commander in 1975, a guy called Billy Hanna. And this man, it is believed, had 50 murders on his hands, if not more. And the only one he regretted when he died in around the mid-90s was the killing of his previous commander. Um, but he operated out of a place called Donatloni, um, which is not too far from Lurgan. And he um, was an ex-UDR man, and he had close connections with the RUC. In fact, the Glenan um, name came from the farm that they used to store the weapons that they stole from a barracks in 1972. 
and is owned by an RUC service. So you can already start to see this plot and the, the complicity of the RUC and the UDR being involved in what was clearly um, loyalist murders of innocent Catholics and so on and so forth. But my father was following that um, and, and reporting on that, and he was using a lot of the inside knowledge that he had from a man called Marty O'Hagan, who was shot dead by the Loyalist Volunteer Force in Lurgan in September 2001, I believe. But around that time, the jackal had been taken out of the North and actually had undergone SAS training. Now, the SAS, as people might know, is um, a specialised um, training, British security forces training regime. Um, they're supposed to be the best of the lot in terms of being able to go in behind the scenes and take out people. And Father Raymond Murray, who Bernadette has referenced, wrote an excellent book about the SAS and the, the Northern Ireland Troubles. And um, he had gone to South Africa and also to Australia because of the Sunday World North edition reporting of his activities. And the fact that my father, some people might say stupid, some people might say brave enough to actually mention some of the killings that he was involved in. He was actually getting close to the bone um, and around this man's activities. And then he, um, he was brought back into the north and my father ran a story the Sunday before he was shot on the Thursday after. And he, in that story, he says, the jackal is back in Portadown. And I remember reading the story at the time, and we always lived under this constant fear. And because we, the house used to get repeated death threats, my father, you know, we would have wreaths delivered to the house, house being petrol bombed, all of that type of stuff. And we, we lived our lives as normal as we possibly could and just got on with things. But I remember saying to my mother at that time when I read that story, this could be the one. This could be the one that actually they might act on. And it so happened that Robin Jackson contacted the remnants of what was the North Belfast Shankle Butchers Gang, and a man called John Bingham was also involved in the UVF at the time, and asked them to do a hit on my father. And that hit took place on the late afternoon, evening time of Thursday, the 18th of May, um, 1984. And my father was struck down with three bullets. He was able to protect himself by getting the door shut because what they normally do is they walk in and they just they take you down with one bullet and then they go in and empty the magazine um, as best they possibly can. But he was able to get the door shut and ultimately save his life. And a lot of things happened um, in terms of him being able to have his life saved. There was when he went to the hospital, the right people were in the hospital at the right particular time. Um, but that didn't end there because he continued to carry out his investigative journalism of what was going on. And he was clearly linking the activities of these loyalist paramilitary gangs um, with the collusion of the security forces and was suggesting that this was going to the highest levels um, of the security forces in Derwood, they said. And Unfortunately, then, Marty O'Hagan, who then became a journalist, who was taken out by the Loyalist Volunteer Force, as I said, in September 2001, when he was gunned down in front of his wife 
returning home from a problem larder. And the difficulty I have um, is really, you know, nobody has been, you know, brought to task for the likes of Marty O'Hagan's death. And I can remember, and rightly so, when Veronica Gurin, who was, I don't know why she was the mm-hmm. independent, but when she was gone down in the South, there was a hue and cry, and rightfully so, there was a hue and cry that somebody, um, you know, from the journalist field who was putting their lives in danger by actually proving the truth and bringing that out into the public domain. Um, everything, every stone was unturned to find that woman's killers. And for me, the only reason that no stone has been unturned in regards to the death of Mario Hagen is because that if they, un- if they turn those stones, they will find that the very people that probably ordered, planned, and possibly executed that man's killing, and was probably linked to the, the shooting of my father, would be at the top levels of the security apparatus in the north. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a harrowing story. And the documentary, you know, I, I said to Bernadette yesterday that the, the, the bit that really, does, all of it's, strikes are really hard, especially when you're from the South and you, you, you haven't lived through this and you don't know what, what has, you don't know the intimate details of what's happened and the amount of stories that there are. But then right at the end, you know, there's the Seamus Heaney poem at the end of yeah. it, which is really impactful. But then there's a list of all of the victims of the Glenan gang. And if you watch the Miami show band documentary on Netflix as well, um, uh, Stephen Travers talks about how, they knew about these people before they did the Miami show band thing. And, and had they arrested them before that, uh, you know, um, then there wouldn't have been a Dublin Monaghan bombing. There wouldn't have been Miami show band. Mm-hmm. There wouldn't have been the hit on your father. There wouldn't have been so many other lives taken. But it, it suited the British government to have this war ongoing at that particular moment in time. And there was a, a couple of bits on it, you know, uh, if the listeners haven't seen the documentary, you know, there was when the judge found a number of the RUC men guilty, um, of something, he said, the judge actually said the words that the, the intention of these men were to rid the land of pestilence. Um, it's just, it's, it's frightening to think that this happened on this island in living memory. And of course, Bernadette, you have your own experiences. I don't know if you want to talk about anything there or reflect on Kieran's story. Well, yes, just, just, uh, you know, listening to, to Karen and and uh, and I think people uh, people who have not lived through the north don't appreciate uh, you know it's it's called the troubles it's removed from the south it's interesting at the present time you know we we sat with a slightly jaundiced eye at the squirming of the southern state trying to celebrate its independence. Uh, and they're saying, wait to you, I wonder how you managed the civil war. Because uh, we weren't part of that celebration and the partition of Ireland uh, and the abandonment of the North uh, to its fate is, is part of the, uh, I suppose, part of the confusion of relationship that we hold with the existing state, uh, and with and with the belief belief that there is a better way to organise all of this island uh, independently and in support of all of the people 
from wherever they started life, all of the people who live here. But we are now coming in the north to the celebration of the formation of the northern state, which is not a state, it's a region of the United Kingdom. Uh, and that will all be difficult because all of this, all of this is is a denouement of that and the necessary playing of sectarian cards to divide people now tied into racist cards. But in the midst of all of that were the lives of real human beings, particularly through that whole horror of, of what is euphemistically referred to the troubles by everybody. And the more we see, uh, you know, and we were abandoned and we were abandoned to go through it on our own, despite our constitutional rights. And then we were abandoned by the South in the constitution, in their belief that somehow uh, that contributed to what is a very, very superficial peace going back to what Claire said, where there is no truth and where there is no justice, it is very hard to find out where you're going to find any sustainable peace and where there is no remedy where you're going to find peace. So this place is full of trauma, unresolved trauma, unresolved pain and an increasing understanding that all of us were the victims of British government intelligence manipulation. At this stage, it would be hard to find out if we subtracted all the people in all of the military groups who were not in some way in the employee pay or service of the state would there have been a makings of a war here at all? And they led us into that Bloody Sunday. Bloody Sunday stands out still as the biggest, uh, the biggest occasion on which the state did its own dirty work on their paid time and, and shot up an unarmed demonstration. But the state, uh, as on quiet, uh, on quiet grave showed there were actually occasions on when the police officers carried the murders themselves with nobody else. Then they, from from the lowest level of passing the information to what the logistics of security activity was so that people could circumvent them, to the next level of actually ferrying the murderers in and out, giving not not just accommodating them, they ferried them in and out of places to the highest level where the targeting of people like Pat Finucane, like Jim Campbell, like myself and like others, the specific targeting of people who are exposing what was happening was carried out at extremely high levels. And the strange thing in terms of people 
who were not killed, is that in order to have had any real access to discovery about what was going on there, which people are now getting around on quiet graves and, and getting around some of the, you know, some of the other disclosures of people in high-ranking places in the IRA and the UDA and the UVF who are actually directly in the pay of the state and in those organizations to create the mayhem, to set up murders, and to at will murder themselves. All of that exposure, if that were to be set in the middle of the table, uh, leads us all to believe it won't it won't ever happen. It won't ever. and going back then to somebody like like Ruth Ginsburg, going back to somebody uh, and and the current lawyers who, who are pulling all of that information out, uh, that is a key part of struggle as much as organising and, and picketing. And we have to ask where, where, were all, where were all the rest of the journalists when people like Jim Campbell were, and, and Martin O'Hagan and others were risking their lives? Where were all the rest of the lawyers when Pat Finucane and Barra McGrory and, and, uh, and others were risking their lives? Where were all of the other elected representatives when I was in my early 20s and risking mine? And that, so it's a question not just of government, it's a question of society. And where, and where are they now? Where are they now around homelessness? Where are they now around uh, racism? Where are they now around uh, exploitation of labor? That will lead to these conflicts left and right again. That's my my concern because we can't have lived through it for nothing. Bernadette, that actually what I was thinking as you were talking there um, I, like you said I, like Dave, I have, I can have absolutely no comprehension of what it was like to live up the north either when this was all happening or still today with the, the you know, the consequences of it. Um, but the one thing I do, so I don't feel like I you know, in we're all, myself and Dave all of us, we're all involved in kind of political discourse and organising and activism and how that's all intertwined. And I'm very conscious that I have no right to talk about or judge, you know, anything that anybody did up north. But what I get increasingly frustrated by is how I feel the north is used as a political football by people who only care about it when it comes to politics. And I suppose I want to ask about yourself and Kieran. how do you feel with all the work that's been done up north and having lived through it and it it's still affecting your daily lives? When you, when you see the politics of the South and when you see how the history of the conflict is brought up and the way it's brought up and, and why it's brought up. Maybe Kieran, do you want to jump in on that? Or maybe Kieran, want, Kieran maybe wants to come in there first. Yeah, yeah I, have no, I have no problem. Thanks, Bernadette. Um, I sort of, I look at the situation and how people are sort of, Wandering all over the north in terms of 
supposed peace process that we have. And yes, there's no doubt it's better that we don't have sort of atrocities that were a part of our daily lives back in the 90s war, but particularly the 80s and the 70s. But now to have people sort of lecturing us, you know, about this, that, and whatever. Um, and Bernadette has touched on a very, very important point. We have not gone to the soul or the core of the very causes of this. And the abandonment of how people like myself um, and others, probably from the Nationalist Republican, and dare I say even the socialist communities, felt um, by the South and the British government. Um, and I'll be quite frank and honest here. You know, barring um, what happened through my father's work, the troubles probably wouldn't have touched me, um, other than my own personal experiences with friends and colleagues. Um, but I can only but imagine what it might have been like to live just as an ordinary GAA person in the Mid-Ulster murder triangle. And when I think about people like Aidan McInnesley from Machnacloy going to tra- a football training, and, and you know, the GAA was a big part of my life when I was growing up. Um, and that man, he went to training and he had to pass a security tar that were replete across the whole of the north at one stage and a British soldier's fingers slipped on his rifle and so happened the bullet shot Ed McInnesby through the head and he was carrying his GAA gear and bag we all know this is absolute nonsense and that soldier got away scot-free mm-hmm. um, but those when you think about us when you go over that and I'm, and I'm hoping the people like yourself, Claire and Dave, when you are watching Unquiet Graves and maybe you are researching around the Glen Iron Gang and its activities, that it does hurt because the people in the North also hurt and they hurt for a long, long time. And every day, every day you would have opened the newspaper, every news you would have listened to the most incredible atrocities. And you could go over them and over them and over them. But the one thing that I always try to do is put this in context. Why in the name of God would the security forces and the British government at the highest level ensure that there was a sectarian war? And that's what they created as much as they possibly could and did what they could to ensure that it would continue. Mm -hmm. Why did they do it? And I think They were afraid of the potential development of class politics, which would have been the greatest enemy they would ever see. They actually set up, helped set up a group called Tara, which a leading loyalist called David Payne, who was involved in, I think, the Miami show band bombing, um, and was run by a guy called William McGrath from the Concora home um, on the Newtonard Road, which I'm sure Bernadette will remember, was basically set up to allow paedophiles from the loyalists and unionists, and dare I say, even at British government level, to enjoy themselves um, on young and praying young boys. But that group was actually set up because they were frightened that within the loyalist paramilitary gangs, People like Gusty Spence and others were starting to have influence in terms of why were we being used 
in this so-called sectarian war? What was our ideology? And should we not be looking to politicize? The British government were frightened to death of that because it could have potentially enjoined Catholics and Protestants in a class struggle, which was, I believe, at the heart of the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association and all their efforts, which unfortunately dissipated through the advent of, you know, the troubled campaign. But when I watch now, I sort of, just with a certain amount of cynicism, where were you when we needed you? You know? Yeah, and I think, I, I think there's, what has to be said as well is there's a, a forgotten history. Many, in terms of solidarity, people in people uh, south of the border. I mean, if you looked at the National H Block uh, Armagh campaign, if you looked at the period when when people uh, in in '69 at the very start, uh, you had the biggest movement at that time of refugees across. Uh, a state border in the whole of Europe from from the First World War, and tens of thousand people of people fled predominantly from the Belfast pogroms. Uh, that you had you had the the support of of people who weren't necessarily uh, supporters of any political ideology, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, or or at that time there was only one very, very small Sinn Féin, but people who as human beings uh, look to to their neighbours and and what was happening to them. But the policy of the southern state, uh, despite the constitution at the time, was to, uh, to keep people away from that, not to look there. A partition had, had created that division in the first place, but people weren't looking. If you look at the impact of of the censorship, uh, and then the self censorship that that crept into the media, there certainly was no way to to advance careers in the south of Ireland uh, over the period of the troubles by not taking uh, what would have been seen a respectable uh, pro government line. In, in relation to in, in relation to the north, so so on the one hand you did have the building of grassroots and local community uh, and and local trade trade union action as well. But at the top of every national uh, grouping, you had the stay away from stay away from the north, uh, and part of that of fear. Because people aren't stupid, and we have to understand those things in terms of what we're looking now in in the rise of the right. People learn their history on an intergeneral basis from osmosis, and when the North was at its worst, people would have had a fear in the South, and an understandable fear. Those who had lived through a civil war in the same century that the conflict uh, of the North would not spill spill into the South again, that, that people would not, uh, in, in this generation, or see what their fathers or grandfathers had gone through. And so the suppression of the, the suppression of the Civil War history, which is a big problem in the South, 
suppression of the damage to the development of any kind of a progressive nation that that came out of the Civil War. And if you ask where where is the right coming from, uh, we all have to look back in, in, into our history. Uh, the far right is not a new phenomenon in this country either, yeah. but it has not been strong. So we're all, you know, we are all uh, in a timely way when when we, if we look at Black Lives Matter and, and people are saying, you know, if you knew anything about your history, you'd know what's happening in America. We don't know our own history. It has yeah. been, you know, it has been sanitized and, and buried uh, so that we can, in the southern state, ape our betters and, and look like, you know, we can play this game. There was no part there was no part of the Irish national movement and there was no part of the War of Independence that actually envisaged setting up a state that would mirror the the inequalities of the British state. And, and that's, what we, that's what we ended up with. And that's what we, we, we still have and that unfinished revolution is still there and and covid has has laid it bare you know if we had a different philosophy uh you look if you look at if you look at the lives lenin once said a kitchen maid could run the country and people not quite understanding because of their prejudices against women cleaning up after them was that running a country must be very simple that wasn't the point he was making the point he was making is that Kitchen maids have to deal with the great complexity of life. When I grew up in our house and we had no money, when there would be a crisis, everybody, everybody had to put whatever little they had on the table. Everybody. So everybody's confirmation money got healed out. Money down the back of the sofa got looked for. But everybody put their money on the table. So when we when we had COVID and broken systems, the government should have ensured not that there's protection for capital gains tax, not that people can hang on to their shareholding profits, but that all of the income held by the wealthiest corporations that was earned in this country was put on the table. And unless we start to look at that in an emergency and say, uh, if, if you'd looked at Jeremy Corbyn's policies, were, weren't that radical. But think of the difference we would be in if we had been looking, if we had been looking at COVID on these islands under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, especially when you have a southern government that still tries to look across the Irish Sea and see what the big boys are doing. It would have made a great difference. We still have that task to do. So I'm going to get off the phone and get on with it. <laughs> and, and just on that, because I think it's really, the point is really important that you just made there, because I think it goes back to what Claire was, it was, was touching on, um, was the, you know, the Sinn Féin. I'm not a, a Sinn Féin supporter or a member or anything, uh, but that political football that's used in the run-up to elections about the troubles uh, because of Jeremy Corbyn's style 
policies on healthcare, on housing, on education, and you see the state mm-hmm. kick into action in using the troubles and the victims of the troubles to prevent uh, governments that could potentially bring about those types of policies. And, you know, Kieran, just, sorry, go on, I was Bert. just going to say there before Kieran came in, that's not new. Mm-hmm. Fine Gael is a party. By and large, one, once the treaty was signed, uh, when we came then, uh, you know, if you look back in, in our own history, uh, that, that, that happened again at the formation of governments, at the formation of the state, when those, those who had uh, participated in the War of Independence were, were castigated. Uh, and again, p- people allow that, people allow, and people on the left have allowed that to happen. You know, it, it can't it can't be allowed to happen. Finnegale, well, that's a different question. I'd say Finnegale and Fianafall to sit there and say both of them having having uh, been in government, both of them believing the same things that uh, the worst thing that could happen to the to the country would be uh, a left wing government led by Sinn Féin with that, really, it would have been just a centre government to the left, led by Sinn Féin, and that, that they had the authority to stop that because uh, because Sinn Féin's participation and blaming Sinn Féin as a party for everything that happened in, in the North was an abdication of the responsibility that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil's refusal to deal with the North created. Because they were in government in, in the South successively when we suffered here. Mm-hmm. And when my husband, who when we go back to on quiet graves and where we live, and people don't see the realities, the killing of, of and shooting up of Falls Pub is, is one mile from where I'm currently sitting now. That's our local pub. And the things that people don't see, there is no government squad who comes in after the police goes and cleans places up. And and my husband cleaned that place up with his neighbours, his friends and his neighbours' blood off floors. And sat and wrote a letter to the southern government and got a letter back to ask him how dare he even suggest the implication of the government in that killing. So Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil would need to be looking, and Labour, at their own total abdication of the people of the North before they'd be pointing fingers at who'd be allowed to govern in the South on the back of it. And I actually remember just, I mean, we're going to have to wrap up soon, but I do remember, and I wanted to make this point. There's two things, actually, two points that I wanted to make. One was, you know, you spoke earlier on, Bernadette, about saying, um, you know, where was the South and, you know, abandonment of the South and of what was going on. And nobody uh, would believe you when you were saying that this was happening, when you were living through the murder triangle and the Glen Ann gang and all that sort of stuff. And I remember in 2004, and the reason I know it's 2004 is because I got the guy to sign a book, but Joe Tiernan, uh, who was an RTE researcher, wrote a book about the Dublin Monaghan bombings and the murder triangle. And he had to go and print it himself because nobody yeah. would believe him. 
and that was 2004. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's not even that long ago that people still weren't believing what was happening and the collusion and all the rest of it. And then, Kieran, you're talking about earlier on, and I'll go to Claire for her reflections on this afterwards, but, you know, where were people in the South? And you have to think of our union, uh, Aidatu at the time in 1989, sacking their general secretary, John Mitchell, because he allowed Jerry Adams to speak in our hall. Um, mm-hmm. that was such was the abandonment of even the working class community of people in the north uh, I, I just think it's um, you know I felt a pang of guilt even though obviously I was only a child at the time but from the southern perspective I'm sure I'm reflecting a lot of other people's opinions about this stuff as well is that you do feel guilty we feel guilty that you guys were abandoned in the north throughout the, those troubles even though we weren't alive at the time Claire you just wanted to come in quickly did you? Well, actually, just what you're saying there and something that Kieran touched on as well about solidarity and people from down here kind of looking up and how we feel when we watch those things. And I would have grown up particularly till up until about seven or eight, hearing a lot, you know, being told constantly about the North and being read about the North and told stories. And I remember finding bootleg videos of a bloody Sunday and obviously shouldn't have been watching them, but was. And I was just so... I remember my mom telling me about going up and staying with friends up the north and she'd come down. And the one thing she really, over and over again, trying to instill in me was the idea that the most important thing to the people she stayed with and the friends up there was how important it was to them, for them to feel like, you know, when they looked down, that people actually cared about them and saw them as countrymen. And, that, and they, you know, they weren't completely forgotten about because that's exactly how they felt. They felt like they'd been abandoned. And I remember from a very young age, that sense of guilt and that sense of shame that we looked after ourselves and we were safe and we just completely turned our backs on everyone in the North. And I think that's why I get so worked up when I see people have these really black and white opinions and use it as a political football. And when realistically they don't care any other time, they, you know, they don't really care about the people whose lived experiences yeah. um, are trauma and they don't, they don't want to engage in truth and reconciliation platforms or engage in anything. I always remember the presidential election and Martin McGuinness and Dan on the RTE panel. And Dan made this comment about, you know, when we looked down, we didn't see a border, but when you looked up, you did. And it was such a simple mm-hmm. idea. I was yeah. maybe a teenager at the time, but it just really struck with me how, how can so many people down here feel so entitled to, to comment on what happened when they have no idea of the pain and the trauma it caused and, and during it, you know, completely torn their backs on it. So, yeah, I, I just find we talk about this like it's the past. And even from, you know, the, what you're saying, Dave, about the book in 2004 not being um, published. I think the reason that so much of this happens is because of the shame and the guilt. And it's almost like a smokescreen to not address that. It's, it's people, you know, doubling down instead of saying, well, you know, put our hands up and maybe, you know, we didn't do enough. Yeah, there's still plenty of time. Well, on that note, then. Uh, maybe, if I could, maybe if I could just come in on that particular point there. Actually, you know, in the Sunday World North Edition, um, the producer of that on Quiet Graves, Sean Murray, I think his name is, Patricia Devlin does a story that he's bringing out a sequel, which is going to drill down even more into some of these mid um, star killings and hopefully, you know, and others around the North at the time. Um, but he actually, given the fact there was such a large audience that watched it, 220,000, he said that that was actually historic, that so many people in the South actually watched um, so, and learned and hopefully learned something about what was actually happening 
And I'll, just on a personal level, I never knew about partitionist politics other than what was in Irish history. But on a real street level or personal level, until I actually started working for Mandate Trade Union, and I had to then mingle with fellow trade unionists, um, both in and outside of the organisation I worked for. And I was absolutely gobsmacked at some of the experiences and things that might have been said to me that were just clear partitionist and delighted to be partitionist and that mm. they, you, know, you people up there is having a clue what is a rat um, and all of this type of stuff and none of that really matters to us. That was actually said to be by a high-ranking trade union official um, and it, it, it had, it, I just couldn't even believe it. You don't have idea that some people um, we in the trade union movement even in the north maybe had to deal with people just getting to work and back home safely with their lives in their hands um, mm-hmm. and that's what was happening and you know it, it just I couldn't understand that, the, that that element of even in a trade union sort of environment there wasn't that element of solidarity that partitionist mentality was very evident, I believe, in the South and not so much maybe in the North. And maybe we were preoccupied about, you know, just making sure that we were able to get from day to day in the North. Um, but it does need to be looked at and examined. And if, you know, productions like Unquiet Graves and maybe more journalism, um, even though, as Bernadette rightly points out, oh, the journalists are now writing when it's all bloody well safe to write. Um, maybe if that does create a, a, a mindset shift then maybe we may be able to move on. As Bernadette says, there's still time. And on that note, I think we'll wrap up. We've been over an hour and a half on this one, so it's the longest podcast, but I think it's well worth it. <laughs> um, listen, uh, I want to thank Claire O'Connor, uh, my co-host. I, I, but in particular, I want to talk um, thank Kieran Campbell for his reflections and his personal story. It's not easy to have these conversations. And then, of course, um, our guest, our, our main guest this week, Bernadette McAllisky, for... Her insights, as usual, um, still as new and as fresh and as valid as ever. And I really, I could listen to you all day and I'm sure the rest of the guys could too. Uh, thanks, Bernadette, for coming on. This has been The Week at Work, episode 21, uh, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. <laughs>